Good afternoon, everyone. In last week's sermon, we began a discussion of the two covenants, often referred to as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We discussed evidence that the term law in Paul's epistles, and especially in the book of Galatians, often refers to the Old Covenant. The term law often refers to the Old Covenant, and the term law is actually used in several different ways in the Bible, and the context determines how we're to understand that term in specific instances. We came to the question in Galatians 3 and verse 19, where Paul asks rhetorically, where for then serves the law, or why was the law given? And he was asking, why was the old covenant given? As we pointed out, Paul is using that term in the book for the old covenant. And so he's asking, why was the old covenant given? That is, what purpose did it serve? And Paul answers that question. It was added or enjoined, as it could be translated, because of transgressions. It was added or enjoined because of transgressions. So we have here the basic, the overall purpose for which God instituted the Old Covenant. It was enjoined to Israel because of transgressions. And the, then we come to the question, what does that mean? It was added because of transgressions. And when we understand the answer to that question fully, then we will understand the purpose for which the law or the old covenant was given, or the purposes actually. There are a number of purposes that we will see are involved that, that all relate to this overall purpose of transgressions. And we'll be discussing what that means in this sermon, what does that mean? We're told the Old Covenant was enjoined to Israel because of transgressions. And we'll read that verse again in Galatians 3 and verse 19. Wherefore then serves the law, or the Old Covenant, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand uh, the hand of a mediator. Now, notice here that the Old Covenant here referred to as the law were, was added or enjoined till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, who is that seed? The seed being spoken of in this particular context is Christ. As Paul affirms in verse 16 of Galatians 3, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. To your seed in this particular context, who is Christ. Now, seed is used in a different sense in other places in the book of Genesis connected with promises to Abraham and his seed, but in this particular case it is referring to Christ. And the law, or the Old Covenant, was intended from the beginning to be temporary. 
it was added or enjoined to Israel alongside the covenant with Abraham, but it was from the very beginning intended to be temporary. As Paul said, it was enjoined until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So that law that was given to Israel at Mount Sinai, the old covenant, was intended to be temporary. And again, it was enjoined because of transgressions. But transgressions of what? To answer that question, I want to go back to the very beginning, the creation of mankind. After God created Adam, He set him in the Garden of Eden, as we read in Genesis chapter 2, and He commanded Adam to eat of the trees of the garden. He commanded him, and the way it's often translated in the book of Genesis leads one to believe that perhaps it was a less forceful command than it actually was, but God commanded Adam to eat of the trees of the garden in Eden, and one of those trees was the tree of life. That was one of the trees that God commanded Adam to eat of. And that tree of life is representative of the Spirit of God by which eternal life is given. The gift of eternal life is given through God's Spirit. And that's what that tree of life pictures or was representative of. It's a metaphor in a sense of the... Of the Spirit of God and eternal life through the Spirit of God. In Genesis 2 and verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Or a more correct translation of you may freely eat, where it's translated you may freely eat, a more correct translation would be eating you shall eat. Of every tree of the garden, eating you shall eat. And that included the tree of life, which was a command to eat of that tree along with the others. In Genesis 3 and verse 22, this was after... Adam had disobeyed God's command. For the first point of disobedience was that he did not follow through and eat of all the trees that God had told him to. He had not eaten of the tree of life. But he had eaten of the one tree that God forbade to him, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And... Then in Genesis 3 and verse 22, after Adam and Eve had eaten of that tree that was forbidden, God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So we see here that he had not eaten of that tree heretofore, and had he eaten of it, he would have been granted eternal life. The tree of life was a symbol of eternal life, which comes from the Spirit of God. In Romans 8 and verse 11, we see that 
eternal life does come from God's Spirit or comes through God's Spirit. In Romans 8 and verse 11, it says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we are given life from the dead through the Spirit of God, which dwells in us if we're genuinely converted. And in Revelation 2 and verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And what that is saying is that those who overcome will be granted eternal life in the kingdom of God. The tree of life is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now the other trees in the Garden of Eden also are metaphorical or typical, representing various prerogatives of and benefits of God's government. And you might say, how do you know that? Well, because there are similar metaphors used elsewhere in the Bible that tell us that as, as we compare them. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 47 and verse 12, we see a picture of the millennial period and we see living waters flowing from beneath the temple or out, out from the uh, temple of God in Jerusalem where Jesus will be sitting on his throne at that time and those living waters will form a mighty river as they flow to the east from Jerusalem, from God's temple and his throne. And in verse 12, it says in Ezekiel 47, along the bank of that river, on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. In other words, what it's saying is that they will continually bear fruit. And it says their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine or healing. Trees are often used in the Bible as symbols of government or of a kingdom and its fruits, as it is here in this case. For example, in Daniel 4 and verse 10, this is Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 4 and verse 10, he says, These were the visions of my head while on my bed. He said, I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. Now, this vision of a tree visible from all ends of the earth and its leaves for food and its branches and leaves for shade and so forth and all flesh was fed from it. That's, that's not something that was to be understood literally but it was to be understood metaphorically as symbolic. 
of the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the benefits of living in that kingdom or under that government. In Daniel 4 and verse 20, Daniel is interpreting the vision and he says, the tree that you saw, he said to Nebuchadnezzar, the tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. So the tree was symbolic of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, which had grown strong. It was, a, in a sense, a worldwide empire. Its influence reached to the ends of the earth and, as he said, to your dominion to the end of the earth. In Revelation 22, beginning with verse 1, we see a similar metaphor in relation to the New Jerusalem, which will be the capital of God's government after the Father himself comes down to tabernacle with his family of human beings who have been given eternal life in his family and kingdom. And it says there, He showed me a pure river of, of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, which we read a moment ago, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so this is a metaphor that is used a number of times, several times at least, in the Bible, picturing the benefits and blessings of living under the government of God with what it produces, its fruits. And as we read earlier in Genesis 2 and verse 16, God had commanded Adam to eat of every tree of the garden, which included the tree of life, representing the gift of eternal life through the Spirit of God. But one tree God preserved for himself, and that one tree represented an office and prerogative of God, which he alone is qualified for and is capable of filling. Now, before discussing and discovering what that office is, what that represents, what office that represents, the tree that was an exception to the others, Let's go back even further into history and review the purpose for which God made mankind in the first place. Both scripture and the discoveries of modern science reveal that the physical universe is not eternal. It has not always existed. It came into existence at a particular point in time. And it's widely believed among astronomers and theorists that the universe itself came into existence around 15 to 20 billion years ago. But it is not eternal. That's the point. We really don't know how old it is. Nobody knows, actually, except God. No human beings know precisely how old it is. But it is clear that it is, it is very old. Even the Bible tells us that. And that it came into existence at a point in time. 
But before the universe existed, there was God. And the Bible tells us that God is eternal. It tells us that in the Godhead are two separate personalities, two beings who are God and are referred to as the Elohim or the Mighty Ones. And they both are eternal, neither having any beginning of life nor any end of life. They are eternal. As far as God is concerned, there is no beginning, nor will there be any end. In John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. In other words, He existed before there was a beginning as far as the creation is concerned. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice the Word, and this, as John tells us, this Word that he is referring to is Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was both with God, and He was God. Because there were two in the beginning who already existed. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so what he's telling us is that Jesus Christ has eternal life, and it is through him that we can receive eternal life. In Hebrews 7 and verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he was king of Salem, or which means king of peace, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that's what Melchizedek means, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And then in verse 8 of Hebrews 7, it says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. In other words, he is eternal. He is ever-living. He is not a mortal being, but an immortal, eternal being without beginning and without end of life. Now, these two beings each had perfect character. They lived according to living spiritual principles which produced joy, peace, and abundance of life. Principles or laws. And they enjoyed life. And because of the joy that these beings possessed and because their minds are characterized by a spirit of giving, they conceived a plan to share with others that life that they had, the life of supreme happiness and joy that they were experiencing. They conceived a great master plan for the creation of a family, also a great nation of beings after their own image. Beings, children of God, sharing their nature, who would also share with them the joys of eternal life lived according to the spiritual laws which govern intelligent living beings and which produce happiness and joy and peace. Everything 
God has done in dealing with mankind has the ultimate aim of fulfilling the supreme master plan for sharing the joy of eternal life with his family and nation. Notice in John 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Notice Jesus tells us why he came. Why he came as a human being was changed, emptied himself of his divine glory and power and became a, a human being so that he could die on the cross to pay for our sins. And he says he has done it so that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. In John 15 verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And in John 17, verse 13, Jesus said, Now I come to you, speaking, he was speaking to the Father in a prayer. John 17, verse 13, he says, Now I come to you in these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is God's purpose in a nutshell. To give us life. And not just life, but a life filled with joy. Brimming over with joy and happiness for, for eternity. Like God's life is. God wants us to share His life. That's why He created us. That's why Jesus Christ came. and That's why He preached the gospel. It's why He worked miracles. It's why He died on the cross. It's why He was resurrected. The fulfilling of God's plan requires, however, the development of perfect spiritual character in each one who is to share in the gift of eternal life. And that developing of character involves willing submission to the eternal law of God and to His government, to God Himself. Submission to His laws and His government. Submission to Him as the King and Creator and ruler of the universe. In terms of obedience to His laws, all members of the family and kingdom of God must be of one mind. All must come to willingly adhere to the same standard of love as expressed in God's law, and all must become totally subservient to the will of the Father, the supreme ruler, as administered through His law and His government. Now, of course, everyone, every member of that family will have their own individual personalities, but as far as God's law is concerned, all must come to the point where they are willingly obedient and subservient to that law and the supreme ruler. And that is why Jesus Christ revealed to John in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, Blessed are they that do His commandments, said Jesus. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city.
The city spoken of here is the New Jerusalem, where the, the kingdom of God in effect. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. And those who are not willing to do His commandments, to live by His commandments, will not have any right to the tree of life, and they will not enter into His kingdom. That's why when Adam refused to do God's commandments, he was denied access to the tree of life, and he was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Same principle. God's perfect character is expressed in His spiritual eternal law. And that law is based on the divine principle of love, of outgoing concern for others, of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that law is expressed more specifically in His commandments. Now, the law that we're speaking of which entails the commandments of God, is a spiritual law. And as a spiritual law, it must be spiritually discerned. We read in Romans 7 and verse 14, 7 and verse 14 of Romans, we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. And in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, Paul wrote, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The ordinary carnal human being cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Man made of the dust of the earth and God's physical image, not having the Spirit of God by nature, cannot discover this law or obey it of himself. As Paul said, man cannot of himself know or discern the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Without the Spirit of God, human beings are incapable of properly discerning right from wrong. Now, they may be able to discern some things in a correct manner, but there will be a lot of gaps, a lot left to be desired in their discernment. And without the Spirit of God, human beings simply cannot fully discern right from wrong. And because of that fact, and because the Father is the supreme ruler who shares that office with Jesus Christ, God reserved for Himself the office and prerogative of lawgiver. Now, notice that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That is, the right hand of the Father and all things are placed under His authority. And that is under the authority of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1, in verse 20, says, which He worked, speaking of God, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him 
at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what this tells us is that God the Father has, set, has placed Jesus Christ on his throne at his right hand, and that he has placed everything under his feet, under his authority. The only exception is the Father himself, the only person who exists, the only thing that exists, not under the authority of Jesus Christ, is the Father himself. Because the Father is supreme in authority, even over Jesus Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, Paul wrote, Then comes the end when he that is Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, that is to the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And there's a lot in that verse, a lot of meaning there that could be dwelt on for quite a while. But what it tells us is that Christ himself is over everything except the Father. And as head over all things, God is the supreme ruler of the entire creation, and he is the lawgiver. The tree that God reserved for himself in the Garden of Eden represented that office of lawgiver, represented that prerogative of God as the lawgiver, as the sole lawgiver. And it was the tree of the knowledge or designation, as it could be translated, of good and evil. The root of the Hebrew word translated knowledge, the root is yada. The root of the Hebrew word translated knowledge as in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil includes a wide variety of meanings, but among those meanings is designation or appointing. To designate or to de determine or to appoint what is good or evil. To decide, in other words, what is good and what is evil. To, in other words, to make laws defining the difference between what is good and what is evil. And the laws of God tell us what is good and what is evil. That's what their function is, is to inform us as to what is good and what is evil, as far as the mind of God is concerned. And God is the lawgiver. As we read in Romans 2 and verse 18, Paul was writing to the Jews here in this particular context, and 
he was saying to them that they assumed that they know his will, that is the will of God, and to prove the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. Notice he said the things that are excellent, they had the opinion that they were in a agreement with the things that are excellent or good, you might say, being instructed out of the law. Because the law tells us what is excellent or what is good. Goes on to say in verse 20 that they consider themselves to be an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. And that, that is precisely what the Old Covenant is. It is a form of knowledge and truth. It is the knowledge of good and evil expressed in a specific way. In Romans 3 and verse 20, Paul said, By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, it is the law that tells us what sin is. It is through what the law tells us that we are made aware of the difference between good and evil and what is sin or the transgression of the law and therefore what is evil and what is good for that matter. In James 2 and verse 8, James writes, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Notice the law tells us what is well or what is good to do. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, you're doing good, is what James is saying. In verse 10, he said, Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So here the law tells us what is evil. Adultery is evil. Murder is evil. And those things are forbidden by the law. In 1 John 5 verse 3, we read, This is the love of God. This is how the love of God is defined that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. If we claim to love God, then we will be keeping His commandments because that is His love. That's how His love is defined. The law defines godly love. Divine love is defined by the commandments of God. And in James 2 and verse 12, James wrote, There is one lawgiver. There is one lawgiver, and only one, and that is God. So God is the lawgiver, and His laws define good, and they define evil. That's the purpose that they serve. The choice given to Adam and Eve 
and the choice given to each of us as far as God is concerned is to obey or to disobey His laws. That's our choice. Either we obey or we disobey. And we will bear the consequences of our choice, for better or for worse. But we are not given the authority to decide what the laws are. We are not given the authority to legislate in violation of God's laws, but only to carry out the principles of God's law or His laws in accordance with His will. But Adam and Eve were not satisfied to obey God. They were not willing to obey God and to receive His blessings as a consequence. But instead they lusted for His prerogative as lawgiver and they slandered God in their hearts and they usurped His office as lawgiver when they ate of that tree that was forbidden, even when they refused to follow His command in eating of the trees of the garden to begin with, which included the tree of life. It says in Genesis 3 and verse 1, Now the serpent, meaning Satan, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And this is also metaphorical. It doesn't mean Satan was literally a snake, which some people have mistakenly assumed. But it's using a serpent as a symbol of cunning and deception and subtlety or camouflage pretending to be something you're not. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruits of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. In other words, you can become your own God. You don't need God to be to tell you what to do. You can be your own God. You can open your eyes and you can decide for yourself what is good and evil. You will be like God knowing or being able to designate or decide for yourself what is good and evil. That was Satan's message to them. God, he says, is trying to keep you back from being able to decide for yourself what's good and evil. And that's why he told you not to eat of that tree. But if you eat of it, then you'll have that power. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, that is, wise in one, one's own sight, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And they were eating something that was forbidden. They were eating, they were partaking, taking to themselves that office and prerogative of lawgiver. They were making themselves their own lawgiver. But it is not permitted to us to decide for ourselves right and wrong. 
it is forbidden. Rather, we are judged according to God's laws, the laws which, as far as God is concerned, determine right from wrong. James 2 and verse 12, it says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Notice it is not called a law of slavery, it's called a law of liberty because it liberates us. It, it liberates us to be able to live life to the full, which is impossible without that law. And we will be judged by that law. We don't decide what the laws are, but we will be judged by them. Now, we may think that we're deciding for ourselves what the law is, but ultimately we're going to be judged by the laws of God, not our own laws. In James 4 and verse 11, James said, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. When you take upon yourself the authority to make your own laws, you in effect become a judge of the law. But what we are to be are not judges, but doers of the law. And he goes on to say there is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. By his actions in taking upon himself that prerogative to instead of obeying God's laws to judge for himself what the laws ought to be. Adam rejected the opportunity for eternal life that God had offered him at that time. The opportunity for eternal life represented by the tree of life. Now, will Adam be resurrected later and given further opportunity? I don't know. And only God can judge. We're, we're not the judge of those things. God is. But it is evident that he had rejected his opportunity at that time and missed out on it. And he was condemned to die as a consequence of his choice. In yielding to Satan... Instead of obeying God, Adam and Eve had earned the death penalty, which God had warned them about. And in so doing, they had also chosen Satan's rule over the government of God. They chose to be under Satan's government and under his dominion and power. They'd placed them under his, his power and his influence. And God has allowed that choice to stand for all of mankind. Satan, for the time being, has remained the God of this world because of the choice the progenitors of mankind made. Now, Adam and Eve, had they taken a different course, 
had they chosen to obey God, and had they received the Holy Spirit, and with it the gift of eternal life, they may well have replaced Satan, given rulership over the earth directly under God's authority. But that's not what happened. In John 12, however, in verse 31, Jesus said as he was facing death on the cross to pay for our sins, he said in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, meaning that he was going to be replaced. Satan is the ruler of this world that Jesus was talking about. Satan is the god of this world or of this age. As we read in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, speaking of those who do not believe the gospel, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Notice that Satan is referred to here as the God of this age, the great deceiver, as he is referred to in Revelation chapter 12. The serpent of old, the one who was in the garden and deceived Adam and Eve. That's Satan. But it is God's purpose in due time to remove Satan, as Jesus indicated, as the ruler of this world, and to replace him with a human being. To replace Satan with a human being as ruler over the earth and God's creation. But replace him with a human being who is obedient to God and responsive to his will. Notice what we read in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Chapter 2 and verse 5 of Hebrews. He, God, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Now the, the earth is ruled now by an angel, Satan the devil, who was who, who is an angelic being who, who turned against God and rebelled. But he says the world to come is not going to be placed under the subject under subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that you take care of Him. You have made Him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor and set Him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. And that statement is a quoting from the book of Psalms. But... Paul goes on to say, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. He's talking about mankind. He's, got, he's saying that there will be nothing that is not put under the authority of mankind. But he goes on to say, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Satan is still on his throne, so to speak. Satan is still the ruler of this world. Paul says we do not yet see 
that these things have come to pass. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. But Jesus Christ has not yet taken over direct rule of the earth in the sense that he has displaced Satan, but he will one of these days. We're told that Adam is a type of Christ. In certain respects, Jesus Christ came in a sense to undo what Adam did by his wrong choice. In Romans 5 verse 14, Paul wrote, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Notice that Adam is a type of him who was to come, that is, a type of Christ. goes on to say in verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So, in a sense, Adam is a type of Christ, only the two are opposite in that Adam failed, through his sins, and Jesus Christ did not fail through his obedience because he did not ever sin. Now, Satan, through deceit then, because it was through Satan's influence that Adam was led to reject God's government, but by his deception, Satan retained his rulership over the earth and that rule is called in Romans 5, the reign of death. The reign of death. Now remember that God told Adam that if you partake of that tree that is forbidden, you will die. You'll receive the penalty of death. And Satan's rule is called the reign of death. Had Adam not sinned, there apparently would have been no reign of death over mankind. Adam, had he not sinned, had access to the tree of life. He had access up until he sinned. And then that access to the tree of life was taken away from him. And remember that tree of life pictures or portrays is, is a metaphor of immortality, of eternal life. Adam was not created immortal, but he could have been given immortality even as Jesus Christ was when he was resurrected from the dead. Of course, he was actually had immortality before he emptied himself of his divine power and glory. But that immortality was restored to him at the resurrection, and Adam had the opportunity to have immortality, that same gift given to him. 
But because Satan overthrew Adam, death has awaited every human being. Mankind for 6,000 years has, have lived under a regime which produces death as its final reward. And the great ruler behind that regime is Satan. And as we read in Romans 5 verse 13, even those who have not sinned after the same manner as Adam, that is, who have not rejected God and His laws as Adam did, have had to succumb to death. Even the righteous have died. Noah, who is referred to as a righteous man, he eventually died. Abraham died. Isaac and Jacob died. David died. Every human being since Adam and Eve, everyone has died. Except those, of course, who are still living. And all of us will die too eventually, unless Christ comes before that happens. As it says, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So it was by one man, the physical father of mankind, that death entered. As Paul wrote in Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. All except one. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, Paul wrote, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And in Hebrews 9, verse 27, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Death, as God told Adam, is the penalty for breaking God's laws. It's the penalty for breaking God's spiritual law. And, there, and God has allowed every human who's ever lived for the last 6,000 years to die to drive that lesson home. Mankind's history tells us that, that the penalty for sin is death. That the ultimate consequence of sin, of sinning, of breaking God's laws is death. After Adam was put out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden, he began to sire sons and daughters. And mankind began to multiply on the face of the earth. But as human beings multiplied, mankind became more and more corrupt, more and more rebellious against God and disdainful of His laws. So it tells us in Genesis 6 and verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And evidently in that age from the brief information we're given in the scriptures, only a very few people before the flood chose to obey God. When God finally determined to destroy humanity, 
1656 years after he had created the first man, only one man was found faithful to him and worthy of salvation, and that man was Noah. As it says in Genesis 6 and verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So Noah was faithful. Now, no doubt Noah had sinned at some point, as every human being has other than Jesus Christ, but he was still noted as a just man and one who walked with God. Now, as by one man, Adam, humanity was condemned to death, so by one man, the one man on the earth who was righteous, humanity was preserved alive because God had determined to destroy that society. He had determined to destroy every human being from the face of the earth, but salvation for mankind was afforded through Noah and his family. And that salvation is a type of the ultimate salvation of mankind through Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, it says, When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When, when you are baptized, you are in a sense going through the same process of salvation by which Noah and his family were saved through the flood. Only it is a spiritual salvation that is represented by baptism, a renewing of life, the recreation, so to speak, the rebirth of a, of a new man. And you're picturing the resurrection of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you are, in a sense, imitating that in a metaphorical sense. Now, after the flood, mankind once again began to multiply, and once again the great bulk of humanity became rebellious and corrupt and sinful. And the various families of mankind, not too long after the flood, mankind had reproduced rapidly and grown in population considerably within a relatively short time. And there were three sons of Noah, and each son had produced offspring. And there were developed from those descendants various families of mankind. And it was God's intent to take these different families of mankind and place them, each separate family, in its own inheritance, its own place on the earth to dwell as a family. But they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to be separated. As God had ordained. And they were all of one language. And they had agreed on a plan to rebel against what God had in mind for them. 
And so God confused their languages and forced them to comply with his will. As we read in Genesis 11 and verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And then in verse 8 it says, The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. God had intended that they not be of one language at that time, and that they not all dwell together and be unified, because he knew what would come out of that would be super-rebellion, so to speak. Would be a whole humanity united in opposition to him and his ways. So they were scattered, but as the years went by, mankind as a whole became further and further separated from the knowledge of God and his way of life. And as we read through Genesis, we find glimpses of man's continuing degeneration. In chapter 20, we find a certain knowledge of God's way still evident among the nations in Abraham's time. But by the time of Joseph, centuries later, birthday celebrations, a custom rooted in false worship and superstition, and wanton murder are accepted practices of rulers. As we read in Genesis 40 and verse 20, Now it came to pass on the third day, which was, this was uh, the third day after a, a vision, which had been interpreted by Joseph, or a couple of visions actually. It came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And Pharaoh had a big birthday party. And he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker who had the chief butler and the chief baker had been cast into prison for some unspecified reason, except that they had displeased Pharaoh. But he had cast them into prison. And on this day, the birthday of Pharaoh, he lifted up the head of the chief butler and the chief baker among his servants. But then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Now this was just the tip of the iceberg of things that were going on in the world at that time. But later on, by the time of Moses, even still later, all but remnants of the knowledge of God had been forgotten. The descendants of Israel... Now, of course, Israel, or Jacob, knew God and was faithful to God. But by the time of Moses, several generations later, the descendants of Israel were living under the oppression of slavery in Egypt. And they were serving strange gods in a foreign land. As Joshua commented to the Israelites, this was after they came out of that came out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, 
But notice what he said in Joshua 24 and verse 14. Now therefore he said to the Israelites, Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So he had to tell the Israelites this was after they'd been brought out of Egypt, after they had made the covenant with God at Mount Sinai, after they had been brought into the promised land and received their inheritance. He had to tell them, put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river, that is, on the other side of Jordan and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. So there was rank idolatry, which persisted even after the people of Israel came out of Egypt. The law of God, those eternal principles which together comprised the way of life, was being universally transgressed on the earth. There, were, there was evidently virtually no one by the time Moses was chosen by God to be sent back to Egypt to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt who was faithful to God. Now Egypt was before the Exodus the most powerful kingdom in the world. And what was going on in Egypt was typical of what was going on worldwide at that time. Their idolatry and all of their other transgressions. The land of Canaan also was typical of what was going on worldwide. Rank idolatry. A way of life embracing every perversity and wicked evil under the sun was being practiced. Years before, God had told Abraham that he would not give his descendants the land of Canaan as an inheritance until the iniquity of the peoples of that region had progressed to the extreme limit. In other words, until their sins, their sinfulness had become intolerable. And he said to Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." The iniquity, the sinfulness of the Amorites is not yet complete. Their degeneracy has not reached the point where I am ready to destroy them out of the land. But it was making progress toward that point. And the word Amorite used here in this verse is a generic term for the nations of Canaan, the Amorites, one of those nations being the most powerful and probably the most wicked of the various nations that inhabited Canaan at that time. But their iniquity was not yet complete at that time. But it was complete 
by the time of the Exodus. And that indicates what conditions on earth were like by the time of the Exodus. Archaeology and history, as well as the Bible record, teach us that such abominable practices as adultery, fornication, prostitution, sodomy, murder, and cannibalism were all a part of commonly accepted customs of the day. And all of these things, interestingly enough, were being done under the guise of religion. So it was an idolatrous system which embraced every manner of sin one could imagine. So, back to the question, why was the law or the Old Covenant given? Because of universal transgression of those very principles given expression in the law or the Old Covenant. The giving of the Old Covenant was a major step in laying the groundwork for the restoration of God's government on the earth. God had determined to give man 6,000 years in which to experience firsthand the misery of living contrary to His law. The flood had demonstrated the ultimate end of man-made society apart from any restoration of God's government. And now, mankind had corrupted himself almost, if not altogether, as much as he had done before the flood. So the overall reason that the law or the Old Covenant was given was because of transgressions in order to deal with the situation, the circumstances at hand. Due to transgressions, the transgressions of all mankind, God instituted the Old Covenant. And it was time for God to begin laying the groundwork for the restoration of His government by separating and preserving a people for Himself, a firstfruit, so to speak, of mankind. And this brings us to the first of five major reasons for the institution of the Old Covenant, all related to the overall problem of sin. And in the next sermon in this series, we will plan to discuss these reasons in greater detail.